This is tax update number 11 for August 20th, 2005. This week's topic for the tax update is relates to the solar and alternative energy residential tax credits that were enacted as part of Section 25D of the Energy Tax Incentive Act of 2005, effective for 2006 and 2007. As is normally the case, the Tax Update podcast is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those who are not skilled in their own independent tax research. All readers and listeners are expected to do their own research to confirm items raised in this presentation before relying upon the position presented. As well, the materials for this podcast are available on the eZollers.com website or at www.edzollerstaxupdate.com. That will get you to the same location, and you can download the printed materials for this presentation, as well as the podcast. Congress enacted the new provision of Section 25D to provide three new credits for specific types of expenditures for solar and alternative residential energy credits. Basically, the new credits beginning in 2006 consist of a 30% credit of the cost of qualified photovoltaic property expenditures made by the taxpayer during the year, another 30% credit for qualified solar water heating property expenditures made by the taxpayer during the such year, and similarly 30% of qualified fuel cell property expenditures made by the taxpayer during the year. Each one of these credits is subject to its separate cap for dollar amounts. The maximum credit for qualified photovoltaic property is $2,000 for that particular property. We have a $2,000 maximum for qualified solar water heating property expenditures and a $500 maximum credit with respect to each half kilowatt of capacity of qualified fuel cell properties for which qualified fuel cell expenditures are made. Unused credits under these provisions can be carried forward to the following year. Again, these are non-refundable credits. An expenditure for these purposes is treated as made when the, when the original installation of the property is completed, generally, except in the case of an expenditure in connection with construction or reconstruction of a construction. In that case, the property shall be treated, or the amount shall be treated as basically expended, expended in the year in which the original use of the constructed or reconstructed structure takes place for the taxpayer, and the taxpayer begins to use that. These can be important rules given the fact that we only have a two-year window in which to put these expenditures. So the problem becomes a taxpayer needs to have the date treated as expended fall within that two-year parameter. This is both an opportunity to move the installation date or the use date into 2006 for expenditures that may be started in 2005, and a potential gotcha if the taxpayer either does not get property installed or does not begin use of property by the end of 2007. You'll need to be careful to watch this. Taxpayers cannot count any expenditures made from subsidized energy financing as defined by Section 48A4C. Those were special rules allowing taxpayers to have subsidized financing, which is subject to its own tax breaks. If they're getting that tax break, they don't get this one. 
the credit does not offset the alternative minimum tax. That's also a potential problem with more and more taxpayers running into the AMT these days. And there are various restrictions and definitions involved that involve each type of property, and we'll consider those issues next. What is qualified photovoltaic property? Well, that's defined in the code at section 25 cap D little d2 as an expenditure for property which uses solar energy to generate electricity for use in a dwelling unit located in the United States and used as a residence by the taxpayer. Now note, for this particular purpose and for the purpose of the next item we'll describe but not for the third one, this does not need to be the principal residence of the taxpayer, just a residence of the taxpayer. So this expenditure can apply to another property. The second residence, the vacation home of the taxpayer, can qualify for this purpose. Labor costs can be included as part of this qualified expenditure, and the property can be a structural component of the roof if the structure otherwise qualifies. These two provisions are found at Section 25 Cap DE1 and Section 25 Cap DE2. Now, E2 is interesting. The title of the provision refers to solar panels, but the text of the provision says solar panels are other property. Now, what do they mean here? Well, RIA in their analysis of the provision indicates that there exists thin solar cells that are only a few millimeters thick that can be incorporated into the roofing materials, shingles or tiles, and that Congress is intending to allow those materials to be used as part of the materials that qualify for this credit. However, there's a caveat. Any energy storage medium that has a use in addition to storage does not count. For instance, swimming pools and hot tubs cannot be counted as part of an expenditure even if the system otherwise uses those to store the heat for use in its qualified purposes. According to the committee report, the property must be used exclusively for purposes other than heating swimming pools and hot tubs. However, the actual language of the code doesn't seem to state and require that. So there may be an issue here of difference between what the committee reports tell you and what the code actually requires. That said, if this difference is deemed to be material, this seems to be ripe for a technical correction. So I don't think I would count on being able to take advantage of any shortfall here or any problem with this issue. I would suggest that you probably are going to have to treat it as swimming pools and hot tubs will not count. The next credit item is a qualified solar water heating expenditure. That is defined in the code as an expenditure for property to heat water for use in a dwelling unit located in the United States and used as a resident of the taxpayer if at least half the energy used by such property for such purposes derived by the sun. So we do have to meet a 50% test here. We have to provide at least half of the, at least half of the energy used by the property has to come from the sun. So it has to meet a 50% test. As well, it must be certified by the Solar Rating Certification Corporation or a comparable entity endorsed by the government of the state in which the property is installed. So we are going to have to have this meet certain standards. As with the photovoltaic property, you can count labor costs as part of this expenditure, and the property can be a structural component of the roof if the structure otherwise qualified. Again, the energy storage medium rule applies. We can't do pools and hot tubs. 
those aren't going to count for this purpose. Uh, and again, the same problem potentially between the committee reports and the code appears to apply here. Qualified fuel cell property. Qualified fuel cell property is defined by reference to section 48C1. 48C1 tells us the term qualified fuel cell property means a fuel cell power plant which has a nameplate capacity of at least one half kilowatt of electricity using electromechanical process and has an electricity only generation efficiency greater than 30%. Now, a fuel cell power plant means an integrated system comprised of a fuel cell stack assembly and associated balance of plant components which converts a fuel into electricity using electromechanical means. Uh, basically, this is going to meet an engineering definition that I certainly don't feel competent to judge. We're going to have to get into what these things are and go into it. However, a couple of quirks about this property. Note, this property does require that the residents in question meet the Section 121 test. So it must be your principal residence. While before we could do a vacation home for the solar energy property and the photovoltaic property, in this case, we can only do a fuel cell in our principal residence if we want to get the credit, uh, as well as noted, the labor costs do count. Now, the Section 121 test, again, introduces us into some consistency requirements, as discussed last week. If you have a principal residence requirement and the taxpayer then sells another residence and tries to exclude a gain on that other residence, you will probably need to explain how this residence ceased to be the principal residence and the other one became it when we went to sell and exclude the gain. And conversely, if you want to exclude a gain, if you excluded a gain, you're going to have to deal with how you could exclude a gain on a property you sold this year, plus treat this as your principal residence for this purpose. Different catch, different quirks. You just have to watch for some consistency here and some reasonable explanation about why the items don't knock out each other. Now, similar rules apply for Section 25 as for Section 25C for joint occupancy and other issues. In fact, as you recall last week when we talked about Section 25C, it merely referenced Section 25 Cap D for these limitations. But we'll quickly review what these limitations were. As with Section 25D for joint occupancy, for purposes of the limitation under Section 25D, all of these 2,000 limitations, the limitations for 2,000 or the $500 limitation, we have to aggregate all joint occupants of the dwelling unit and apply the limitation on that group and then go back and spread out any limitation by type of expenditure dependent upon how much each one put in. So if one person paid 75% of the cost, they get 75% of the limitation. Another person put in 25%, they get 25% of the limitation. Again, this limitation is for joint occupancy of a single dwelling unit. What is a dwelling unit? We're probably looking again at the same rules we have seen under the office and home rules for what is a dwelling unit, the same rules we saw under section 121, looking for what is a separate dwelling unit. And again, separate dwelling units, if you can meet the tests under 280A, you can meet the test under 121 that there are separate dwelling units in the entity, then probably the fact you have two owners is no problem. However, again, joint occupancy, if you cannot show they are separate dwelling units, then you probably have to treat it as one and your limitation is going to be overall.
Again, we have the same sort of quirky limitations there about joint occupancy. We have the same quirky limitations that we had before about the rules about co-ops and condominiums. Uh, again, a co-op and a condominium, the same rules apply as applied to 25C. If the expenditure is made by a cooperative housing organization or was made by a condominium management association, we can split that among the various owners of the condominium common areas, various owners of the co-op. Again, it appears problematical if you have a homeowners association that does not deal with condominiums, but rather deals with single-family residences. It appears that that particular entity may not get an exemption, even though a condominium or a co-op that expended the same funds would qualify for this exemption. Again, that appears to be a quirk in the law. Whether it was intentional by Congress or not is open to question. Nevertheless, it does appear to be the way the law is written. Finally, we have the business use percentage. If less than 80% of the use of an item is for non-business purposes, only the allocable portion used for non-business purposes is taken into account. This clearly would have an impact if we have a property that has an office in the home. If the office in the home is greater than 20% or the expenditure relates directly to the office and home so that more than 20% of the expenditure is allocable to that, then we have to allocate this deduction. Similarly, if we have a 19% allocation to the business use, we can still count the whole thing for purposes of this credit. That again opens up some planning. It may open up some planning in terms of how much of an office space you open up in a residence if you're planning to get these credits. These credits again only apply for the two-year period, so it's going to be very important that we keep track of these credits and work in the two years. Congress may extend them when they're ready to run out. Congress may not. We don't know. For now, we will presume we have two years to get these amounts in. And after the two-year period is up and after we finish 2007, we have to presume that these credits go away. The only piece of good news there, if these credits become popular, is that 2008 is an election year. And it seems likely that if they were popular, the Congress may not be in a good mood to let them expire in a year when they're facing the voters again. So therefore, we may see these extended, but I wouldn't bet on it. The bigger problem is to make sure that taxpayers don't jump the gun and expend money too quickly, because clearly they do not apply in 2005, and if they jump the gun and the expenditure is treated as made in 2005, remembering how we determine when the expenditure is treated as made, basically by use or, by use or installation, then we will lose the credit and never get a chance to get it. As well, watch for the alternative minimum tax that can cause you to lose the credit. Those of us in Arizona have an additional issue to deal with. The state of Arizona has offered for quite a while credits for solar energy devices. With the federal credits on top of these, we may see much more interest in this area. For that reason, it's useful to review the Arizona credits for solar energy devices. Quick summary. Arizona provides for an Arizona resident a credit of 25% of the cost of a solar energy device up to a maximum credit of $1,000. Now, if a married couple files a joint return, they are limited to one half of the credit allowed. 
interesting aside, if you may remember in Arizona this past year, we had a number of credits corrected to eliminate a marriage penalty. Uh, they eliminated it on all those credits. Apparently, though, they didn't get around to fixing this one. This particular credit still imposes a marriage penalty. A married couple gets a $1,000 credit, and a single individual gets a $1,000 credit. Therefore, if two single individuals marry, their $1,000 credit, their $2,000 in credit, suddenly get reduced to $1,000. Now, the credit is not refundable in Arizona, but it may be carried forward for up to five years. Now, solar energy expenditures are defined by a reference to the transaction privilege tax rules found at Arizona Revised Statute Section 42-5115. That provides our definition of what they are, which is a system or series of mechanisms designed primarily to provide heating, to provide cooling, to produce electrical power, to produce mechanical power, to provide solar daylighting, or to provide any combination of the foregoing by means of collecting and transferring solar-generated energy into such uses either by active or passive means, including wind generator systems that produce electricity. Solar energy systems may also have the capability of storing solar energy for future use. Passive systems shall clearly be designed as a solar energy device, such as a trombe wall, and not merely a part of a normal structure such as a window, so don't get too creative here. Okay, to qualify for the credit, the solar energy device and its installation must meet the requirements of Title 44, Chapter 14, and Article 11 of the Arizona Revised Statutes. That's found in the Commerce Title, and what that relates to is the regulation of solar energy devices. Those provisions, which are found, basically there's two sections, Section 441761, which is primarily definitional, and Section 441762, which is really the regulations provide certain rules. Under the regulations, there are requirements for a minimum warranty. There are requirements for minimum standards for the person who installs these devices. There's also requirements that certain certifications must be provided by those who put in these devices. Now realize, to get the credit, you've got to qualify under these rules. If you purchase from somebody who's not qualified, if you purchase from somebody who does not meet these standards, if you do not meet the Arizona standards, you will not get the Arizona credit, even though you may get the federal credit. So it will be important to make sure that your contractors, when you talk to them, you talk to them both about the requirements for the federal credits and the requirements for Arizona. They are not the same. They are different. Each imposes standards, especially in terms of the solar water heating, but the standards are not necessarily the same standards. So we'll have to watch for this. Also, there's a separate credit available for solar hot water plumbing stub-outs and electrical vehicle recharge outlets under Arizona Revised Statutes 431090. Now, a builder can elect to transfer these credits to the buyer of the house. The credit's limited to $75 for each installation for each separate house or dwelling units. Now, the costs related to these items are not eligible for solar development for the solar energy device credit if the stub-out was installed by the builder prior to transferring title to the taxpayer. So basically, if the builder puts it in while the builder still owns it, then it's not eligible for the solar energy device credit. However, the builder can transfer the $75 credit to the buyer of the house. So there is an option there to work with. 
Now, given the fact that Arizona has quite a bit of sun, especially down in the southern part of the state and central part of the state in the deserts, there's quite a bit of sun involved, we may find that the solar energy credits become much more popular here than they would be in other parts of the country. It will probably be useful to get up to speed in this area, especially since we can expect the marketing in this area to increase dramatically next year with the tax credits. So these will be key issues to get up to speed on over the next few months before this law goes into effect. And we have the new credits in place. Now, this week, the Arizona the Arizona credits, as we talked about, are here. This we are going to be dealing with, as I've noted before, the Arizona Society of CPAs. The Circular 230 meeting is still on for the 20th of September. And I would suggest if you're in Arizona and you want to attend that, go ahead and sign up at the Arizona Society website. As well, the Phoenix Tax Workshop is accepting uh, memberships for the upcoming year. The Phoenix Tax Workshop meets kind of once a month. It's closed during tax season. Some months are skipped during the summer. Some months are skipped, but generally uh, monthly on a Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to noon down at the ASU Downtown Center, what we used to call the Mercado, in near on 7th Street and Van Buren in downtown Phoenix. And every month we do three hours of continuing education presentations that deal with a bunch of topics, usually in 20 to 40 minute segments, very short, sweet, to the point topics. If you're interested in joining the, the Phoenix Tax Workshop and participating in this, you can find information about the Phoenix Tax Workshop at www.aztax.org. This has been the tax update for August 20th, 2005. Again, tax update is meant for those who are able to do their own independent research. The information in this podcast and the podcast itself and the materials associated with the podcast can be freely distributed as long as no fee is charged for the distribution or for the use of them. The podcast, this is the podcast for August 20th, 2005, podcast number 11.